Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, for episode 104, we are speaking with Jonas Schnelli and Douglas Bakum of Shift Crypto Security. But first, let me introduce the sponsors of the podcast. So firstly, check out Kraken. They are one of the world's leading Bitcoin exchanges. They've consistently impressed me in the way they operate. They've got a really strong focus on security with Kraken Security Labs. They're one of the longest standing Bitcoin exchanges. They've got a high quality platform offering some of the best liquidity you can find in this industry. There's high trading volume and low fees with no minimum or hidden fees. Kraken have 24-7 support and on the institutional and business solution side, they are providing best-in-class accounting, reconciliation and reporting services for cryptocurrency hedge funds, asset managers and fund administrators. Kraken have an OTC desk for those higher touch large block trades. They offer five fiat currencies and also offer margin and futures trading. To learn more and sign up, go to the Kraken link in the show notes. Next up is Unchained Capital. They're a Bitcoin financial services company offering a two of three keys multi-signature vault product. You can use Trezor or Ledger wallets and it's really easy to set up. The web interface is very intuitive and in doing so, you can distribute your keys, giving you some additional level of protection there. And on the other side, Unchained also offer Bitcoin collateralized loans. So you can get USD liquidity without selling your Bitcoins, meaning you don't trigger a capital gains event. So your Bitcoin is stored in a dedicated multi-signature address under what's called collaborative custody. And so if you want to learn a little bit more about that, make sure you go to the Unchained Capital link in the show notes. Okay, so for episode 104, we are carrying on with the Hardware Wallet interview series. So my guests today are Jonas Schnelli and Douglas Bakum. Jonas is a Bitcoin Core developer and maintainer. He's very well known within the Bitcoin world. He is also a co-founder of Shift Crypto. And Douglas Bakum is the CEO of Shift Crypto. And this is the company behind the digital Bitbox and the upcoming Bitbox 02 hardware wallet. So on to the interview. Jonas and Douglas, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, thanks. Excited to be here. So look, obviously, we're doing this hardware wallet series. Uh, I wanted to discuss with you guys as well from Shift Crypto Security. So look, let's just start with a bit of background on yourselves on you guys and what your role is with Shift Crypto Security. So, Jonas, let's start with you. Yeah, um, uh, Douglas, uh, we met, I think, back in 2014 uh, when that, when Douglas showed me at uh, one of those Bitcoin meetups in Zurich um, his, his uh, piece of hardware. I was quite impressed because it was, yeah, back then, 2014. Uh, not much hardware wallets were around. Uh, I think only Trezor was really... Um, or was was quality wise an acceptable um, thing? And um, yeah, I'm not I, even sure if they were released then. Yeah, could be. I mean, you started certainly before um, they have released with your uh, your PCB design and stuff. And um, yeah, I was really impressed, and I uh, I knew that. Um, I mean, I, I still be aware that key storage is one of the crucial uh, points in the whole Bitcoin space. Uh, it's so hard to really store or protect your private keys. And uh, I think um, I, I saw that this is going to be a huge thing. And somehow we need multiple multiple vendors on that level. Otherwise, it's, it's going to be a kind of a systemic risk for the whole uh, Bitcoin system. 
And as as you may are aware, I'm in for the long term, for the decades rather than the years. And I was working on Bitcoin Core and still do uh, most of my time. And I knew this this needs uh, kind of support. Then I started to collaborate with Douglas. And at some point, we founded a company together. And here we are. Let's hear a little bit from you, Douglas. Yeah, I'll have a, I guess, a bit of, bit of a different take. Uh, well, first of all, your question, like, what, what are our roles? So Jonas right now, he's the president of the company. We co-founded the company back in October of 2015. So that's probably a year after we had actually, uh, more than a year after we had first met and started working on the project. Um, when I started working on the project, I was in a completely different uh different life than I am now. So I was actually a neuroscientist at the university here. I was a group leader uh, at Ateha University. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, our company is a spinoff of a neuroscience lab at ETH. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's uh, quite a stretch to figure out how that connection works. But basically, uh, it was more on the neuroengineering side. So that lab, that laboratory would make um, uh, electronic devices, including PCB devices, ASICs, and so on, in order to help study neurons better and help advance neuroscience. And so through that, but also before that, I had some uh, mechanical engineering uh, background uh, in robotics and AI and stuff like that. Um, so through that, we get, the, uh, I guess, some of the technical foundations uh, for building PCBs, uh, dealing with data processes, uh, how to, how to write firmware, how to deal with USB communication and things like that. Uh, and so we, that really gave a technical foundation. Um, and let's see. So yeah, for myself, um, I started working on it in my spare time then. So I guess I was the inventor of the original Bitbox. Um, and uh, what was the, the story back then, I guess? Um, I started learning about Bitcoin around 2013. Um, took me about two weeks after I bought my first Bitcoin until I was actually comfortable holding it. And so given a technical background, I kind of understood some of the security implications and things like that. And it really took me a long time just to research and actually implement uh, a solution where I actually felt comfortable. And so I was like, okay, this is, uh, this is never going to be adopted if it, if it takes me this long or takes anyone this long uh, to get used to it. And so at the time, there were no hardware wallets on the market. The idea existed. Uh, so Trezor was talking about it, uh, Ledger before they became Ledger was talking about it. Uh, but also at the same time, um, if you're around, you might remember, uh, a lot of scams in hardware, especially with the Bitcoin miners and a lot of people losing money through pre-sales and things like that. And so it was a big question to me if, uh, actually something would come out of it. And so I just decided, okay, what can I do? I'll just try to make something myself. And so just in my spare time, I started making it, uh, uh, coincidentally enough, luckily enough, Jonas and I happen to live in the same city uh, and in Switzerland. Uh, and so we met each other at the meetup. We encouraged each other uh, and it became a really nice fit. So I was working on basically everything that you can touch. So like the hardware, but also the firmware on it. And Jonas has a long background in uh, entrepreneurship, uh, especially with mobile apps. And so he had a, a great skill set for actually building the front end, uh, what users would see uh, in interacting with the device. And so yeah, we tried to do it ourselves, uh, make, uh, make a whole system uh, and got a lot of feed, great feedback, great encouragement from the uh, crypto community in Switzerland, which is, uh, uh, despite being a small country, it's quite strong. Um, and yeah, and we ended up founding the company together. Excellent. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the Bitbox 01 then. So 
there were there's definitely some people amongst the Bitcoin community who are like Bit, Bitbox fans, <laughs> right? Like I see, I even I hear on some of the podcasts people mention the Bitbox as well. So tell us a little bit about what was your experience creating the Bitbox one? Yeah, so I, I mean, I had some basic, you know, background in PCB design and things like that. I'm I've been an academic my whole life through. Uh, so this is actually my first experience in like. I don't know if you can call it the real world or not, <laughs> in, a, in, in, a, in a different world, although there's a lot of parallels, which I find interesting. And so is in be, being an academic, being a scientist by background, I like to, you know, kind of figure things out on my own. Uh, so do a lot, a lot of research and, and learn, become an expert through that, through uh, trying things. So one of the very first things I did with the Bitbox 01, for example, was um, I wrote my own uh, ECDSA library. And I wrote my own like big number uh, library to fit into that. And just to learn how, you know, what, what really it is I'm getting into and what are all the factors involved, like the side channel risks, uh, you know, the need for, um, you know, good entropy for nonce, nonce protection and things like that. And so really, really dig in deep. And that was a great, great experience. Um, and uh, yeah, and then kind of going from there. And of course, uh, if you want to make something, turn something from, you know, just, it was really basic, in the simplest words, you could call it a hobby, right? If I'm doing it in my spare time, uh, to take something from a hobby and actually make it into a, a professional production grade device where now all of a sudden you don't have to worry about yourself being responsible for yourself, but you also have to be responsible for a broader community. Um, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's a big, that's a big thing. Uh, and so it took it seriously. Uh, before we launched the Bitbox 01, of course, I made sure to uh, deal with or start communicating with uh, the community, uh, especially the, the security experts, uh, uh, audit firmware, uh, talk to different companies, talk to different experts in cryptocurrency and in Bitcoin specifically, and try to really you know take responsibility for it. Uh, I'll, st- I'll stop there. You can continue. <laughs> Great. Yeah, Jonas, did you want to add any comments around your experiences with Bit- Bitbox 01? Uh, my side, yeah. I mean, as Douglas said, it was starting, it's coming out from a hobby. And at some point, if you decide to do it, uh, to do a product, there is a whole new uh, uh, level uh, going up because it's like you need to deal with uh, limited resources. Um, you need to deal with packaging, with the whole quality insurance. And, 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 and this is huge. And coming from from open source where you have somehow it feels like unlimited time to polish stuff um it certainly uh, was in a in a mode where we had to ship at some point so you, you need to have uh, uh you need to have a great resource management and when it then comes to product quality which includes uh, security and stuff that's pretty new um it gets complicated and i think what we learned is how we can turn a hobby um, into something that that can be can can be produced in large masses with a, with a good quality and uh, Bitbox 01 was mainly, in my opinion, about uh, scaling up, getting ready. Great. I think the listeners will be interested to hear a little bit about your experiences with dealing with obviously hardware wallet hacks, right? So there have been many, but basically every wallet has had some ha- kind of hack or some sort of attack on it. And I know Salim Rashid wrote a post in November 2018, and it's called Breaking into Bitbox. And so there's a few different parts there that might be interesting just to talk through from your point of view. Uh, and we can sort of talk about 
you know, what, what, what went wrong with those, but, and then potentially what's like the improvement with Bitbox 02. So there were a couple, I, I just from reading through that post, he spoke about one aspect around uh, BIP32, the basically coming to how the, uh, the, it was around the hidden wallet and understanding like the way the chain code and apparently it was f- flipped. And so that enabled an attacker to potentially get, you know, the, the key. And, and then there was the other uh, component around uh, a potential man in the middle attack that Salim mentioned. Did you want to just uh, discuss with your thoughts on those attacks? And uh, Yeah, sure. I, I can give it a give it a shot first. Uh, so, yeah, first of all, for, for those who don't know, Salim... Um, He's a really, really smart guy. He's made a name for himself uh, as a white hat hacker of hardware wallets in particular. And he's responsibly disclosed vulnerabilities to us in the past, but also to the other hardware wallet vendors. Uh, and so I, I personally consider him probably one of the best, if not the best expert in hardware hardware wallet security in the industry. And so in, in one sense, it's kind of a bit of a I guess, an initiation process for hardware wallet vendors as they mature. <laughs> so in that sense, it can be a, a bit of a badge of an honor. Badge of honor. Uh, but on the other hand, of course, it's always uh, quite humbling to uh, be publicly faced with uh, you know, bugs and, and mistakes made. Uh, and so that's something we, we try not to shy away from uh, because in the end, it's all about making security better for the end users. Uh, and of course, uh, all sides are aligned with that. And so, uh, yeah, m- mistakes happen. Uh, one of the difficulties with um, security in general, especially for for Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, is that yes, uh, like I said before, we had we did get audits, uh, but you know, getting the the domain specific um, knowledge is is difficult. And so, like the high level concepts, oftentimes the security companies, the security experts, just uh, it's not in their frame of mind. It's not in, not in their uh, the tool the tool set they use to look at security vulnerabilities and things like that. And so it really takes uh, you know special people um, with with the deep deep level interest. Not only not only deep level interest, but also a, a good grasp of the high level concepts uh, to to get security right. And Salim definitely has that. And so uh, we want to be uh, very transparent about it. Um, very open about it, um, really encourage and reward community feedback uh, to help our security. Uh, that's why we have a bug bounty program and so on. Um, these particular uh, vulnerabilities you list, uh, yeah, they're, they're mistakes uh, that happen. Uh, definitely um, uh, parts that got over- overlooked through our security process, both internally and, and externally. So we're very thankful for Celine pointing it out. Very lucky that uh, these particular vulnerabilities weren't weren't permanent, so they could be fixed, and they were fixed in time uh, through the responsible disclosure process that individuals didn't get uh, affected. Uh, and so we're, we're conscious of the fact that probably there's going to be more mistakes, not only by us, by everyone else in the future. And so we want to, um, uh, you know, try try to um, get the best security experts, uh, Sleem and so on, to also be able to help with us. Um, I want to say one of the one of the things uh, in his blog post. Um, so of course, uh, making mistakes with security uh, is humbling. Uh, they do happen. You have to fix it, um, of course. But the thing that probably hurt hurt me personally the most was uh, uh, some language later about, um, I guess, losing motivation uh, to work with us. 
Uh, and so I, I just wanted to uh, address this topic, uh, given the opportunity. <laughs> and so I, I think a lot of that came up uh, out of miscommunication, as, as a lot of uh, issues do. Uh, so we still do have a good relationship with him. Uh, we're trying to continuously improve our bug bounty program, that it is attractive to people. And Salim, uh, he has uh, uh, taken a few of our next generation bitboxes. Uh, and so he has a couple of those at home uh, ready to hack on. And so we're looking forward to continuing uh, this relationship with him and others. Yeah, and he certainly has some hard nuts to crack now. <laughs> yeah, so as I understand, one of the points and potentially this is an improvement yeah. from the bitbox 01 to bitbox 02 is having a screen on the device so i think um that is uh so for listeners if you remember from the earlier episode with michael flaxman he spoke about this concept of making sure that w when you do a transaction you verify it on the in the most secure location and so i understand with the bitbox 02 there is a screen on the device and now that is a uh, security feature that the user yeah. should be making full use of yeah. such that they're not trusting what is on their computer screen yeah, they're trusting sure. what's on the physical device yeah i mean speaking for the bitbox 01 the concept there was that you pair it with a smartphone uh, in order that you have a second factor that would then verify in a secure channel uh, what you or whatever wallet is going to sign and of course it was a different security model um, um, it's probably debatable whether uh, with with an on-screen uh, it's more secure. On the other hand, it gives way more opportunity to interact with the stuff you see on the screen. So you can open, you can see, you can verify things way more easily, which then comes down to what is security uh, in general. Is it to show stuff or is it to make it accessible that user actually can verify things? And if, if your address is on a like uh, on, on a screen where nobody really can read the characters, then it's uh, again maybe higher security if you can verify them on a second factor smartphone. I guess it's all about options. And now with the Bitbox Two, we have a screen on 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 the device, so people can actually verify uh, directly on the device. Oh, I was I was just going to add a little bit to that also. So uh, yeah, the the concept with the Bitbox 01, uh, originally called Digital Bitbox, was yeah to use a, a, a secure connection to a, a mobile app, uh, and then that basically serves as a secure remote screen uh, for your device. Now that said, I think it is possible to have a, a similar level of security using that setup, but the drawback then is. Uh, you have another interface uh, that you have to pair. You have another interface where communication has to go. And so it's opening up the attack vector surface a bit. Uh, but if you get it right, I think the security can be can be similar. It's just a lot easier if you have a, a screen on your device. Uh, and so um, to, to, to avoid a lot of these, uh, these other things you have to think about. So I think the, if I were to summarize then one, and I think part of that is a fair point, is that Sometimes you've got to make sure, obviously, there's that trade-off of security and usability. And I guess you can argue, though, that if you're giving it, you're making it easier for the user to use a hardware wallet as opposed to making it difficult for them, then there might be more incentive that they use a hardware wallet rather than, say, leave it on the exchange, which is everyone agrees that's the worst practice, right? But uh, yeah, but as you mentioned, there is a, there is an additional attack vector. Uh, and in Salim's post, he mentions it was literally the man-in-the-middle attack potential at the point of the... ECDH, the Diffie-Hellman key exchange, that there is a potential for that, uh, for yeah, an attacker exactly. to try to insert themselves into that and obviously uh, ex exploit from that point of view. 
but yeah, okay. So look, let's let's talk about the new device then. So the Bitbox O2. Douglas, did you want to just give us a bit of an overview? Sure. So the Bitbox O2. Um, let's see. The current status is it's uh, we're doing pre-sales right now. I know I mentioned earlier all these problems with pre-sales in 2013, <laughs> but we are doing pre-sales right now. Um, we the difference though is we actually have uh, the product. Uh, uh, existing. Uh, we started a beta program um, a few months ago. So we actually sent devices out to beta users um, to mainly get feedback on the UX testing. In the meantime, we've been going through uh, security audits uh, and we didn't want to start pre-sales until the security audits were actually finalized uh, and they are now. And so uh, production began and we'll start to ship in September, ideally. Um, so that's the current status. What's new? Uh, we already mentioned the screen. The screen is new. Um, so some other things that are new um, include, um, let's see, uh, a USB-C, <coughs> excuse me, a USB-C uh, port, so you can plug it into um, devices directly. Uh, in particular, in the EU, there's been uh, a lot of legislation uh, talk about uh, reducing cable waste. And so mobile phones in particular um, are supposed to have a, a single uh, form factor for, for charging, which is going to be USB-C. And so the general trend in mobile devices, also uh, laptops, uh, is going towards USB-C. So we want to be future ready with that. Um, our our desktop app itself currently runs on on laptop, but it's also we also designed it from the ground up to work with mobile, and so that'll come out soon. And so then you can use our devices with mobile. I think that'll be a, a, a nice feature. Um, one of the things we're very excited about is uh, this touch slider um, mechanism. And what that means is, um, um, so so the device is uh, a small but USB stick size uh, device. We have a screen on top. Um, that covers most of the top space. And then when, on the sides of the device, we have two areas for touch sliders. And so we think you can do a lot of really interesting UX uh, with this. Um, so having to do with um, uh, like password entry or mnemonic seed entry, or just scrolling through your addresses when you need to verify uh, where you're sending coins and things like that. And so we're quite excited about that. We think it... Um, has a few advantages in the sense that you can do things faster. You can do things easier. Uh, we think it can be a more intuitive UX. Of course, uh, there's probably still some rough edges around it now, but we think it has the potential for all these things. Um, also, we redesigned the uh, the security concept from the ground up. So similar to the Bitbox 01, we, we took uh, what we think is kind of the best of uh, of both worlds from Ledger and Trezor in, in the sense of a unique um, dual chip approach. Um, we started that in Bitbox 01. I know ColdCard is now doing that with theirs. Uh, and we tried to further that with, with the Bitbox 02. Um, and I, I don't know if uh, I, I can stop there. We can get into the security of that a little bit later. Um, but just from a high level, that's uh, uh, what's new. Um, I'd also like to say um, with the Bitbox 01, we also uh, learned a lot through that process in the sense of um, uh, we do have customers in 100 countries now, and so we've been able to get a lot of great feedback from them. And so when designing the Bitbox 02, we tried to take what works uh, with the Bitbox 01, uh, keep that, uh, and add in the, the extra features that people are asking for, the screen and so on. Um, some of the things that worked with the Bitbox 01 are the, the form factor, um, the size, it's portable, you can keep it in your pocket. 
uh, people liked a lot the discrete design. Uh, so if you pull it out, you're not automatically advertising that you have a, a you know a hardware wallet with Bitcoin on it, which uh, some of the other uh, vendors that would be the case. Um, and of course, uh, one of the biggest distinguishing factors is uh, the SD card slot, uh, which we started in the Bitbox 01. And um, just to touch on that a little bit, uh, part of the feedback we get from users um, really is, uh, you know, usability still remains maybe one of the highest uh, issues with uh, adoption and also um, just using hardware wallets or any any type of thing you interface with uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, and so a lot of feedback we get from New Year's in particular and our resellers is uh, this concept of mnemonic anxiety. And so I guess your, your, your listeners are well aware of uh, mnemonic passphrases and things like that, uh, but new users aren't. Um, and it's a foreign concept to them. They don't really understand why they're writing words down onto a piece of paper. And people say it takes them, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes to write down very, very carefully each word and then go through the whole process to verify that what they wrote down is correct. It's just really confusing, really stressful. And so with the um, uh, micro SD card slot, uh, we basically reduce that to uh, something that's really, really understandable. Uh, so a backup is understandable by people and it's instant. Uh, so once you create the wallet, we automatically save the backup onto the uh, SD card. And so it's very fast, very easy setup. Also very fast, very easy recovery. Uh, we, we think uh, uh, we've gotten a lot of feedback that people really like that. Um, of course, with the new device, now that we have a screen, uh, we, we also want to um, uh, you know, make it easy for um, the more experienced users to um, be comfortable with our device. So we do have an option for writing down mnemonic seeds on paper. Great. You mentioned earlier the dual chip approach. Would you mind uh, explaining a little bit further on that? Yeah, sure. So there's a uh, in, in your in your past podcast, there's also been some debate about you know open source versus closed source, secure elements versus general purpose microcontrollers. And so by the dual chip approach, um, what we're doing is we take a general purpose microcontroller, we put open source code onto it. Uh, so we can get all the benefits of uh, security that come with open source uh, in terms of um, you know people people being able to uh, verify uh, what you say is true is actually true. I think open source something that doesn't get talked about a lot, um, but else is also very important is the internal pressure on yourself. So if you're really you know uh, opening your coat and showing showing the world everything, you know it gives you more incentive to actually do the right thing and pay more attention to the security and things like that. Um, and so on and so on. Um, with, uh, the closed source secure elements, um, just, just a high level thing, high level, uh, summary. So secure elements, uh, they become secure elements after a certification process. Uh, and this is very expensive, very time consuming. It can take a year or more, it can take a million dollars or more. Uh, and then in the end, uh, in order to use these devices, you need to sign NDAs with, with the manufacturer. And then that severely limits what you can uh, expose uh, to the public. And so they want to keep the code closed source to protect their, their IP. Um, and oftentimes, the, these devices have low um, uh, specs, like you can't put a lot of code onto it. Uh, you can't, doesn't have high... Um, 
uh, low specs in terms of like memory, basically. So you can't put a lot of code onto it. They have, of course, very high specs in terms of security, like physical security, especially. Uh, but that said, there's an incentive uh, by the manufacturers to hide bugs and hide vulnerabilities. And the reason for that is a lot of the, the cryptography that goes on in there is uh, also at the hardware level. Uh, and so when bugs are found and they have been found, um, it would require redesign of the chip and require recertification, uh, new testing. So again, another year, another million dollars. And so there's high incentive for covering up bugs and hacks. Uh, and this is something I think is, um, so uh, that said, I think like the physical security mechanisms are, are great. Uh, we really should take advantage of them. But this fact that bugs, uh, the, this disincentive uh, uh, compared to users versus the manufacturers, I think is a, a big red flag. And it's something we in particular uh, try to avoid. And so that's why another reason why our code is open source. In particular, one of the most crucial aspects is the elliptical curve cryptography library. Uh, and as far as is as I'm aware, uh, I think the libsecp library on the Bitcoin Core uh, code base is by far the best, um, most most well researched, most studied, uh, really paying attention to side channel attacks and so on and so on and so on. Even you know the extensive testing that Peter's done uh, has led to um, you know bugs being found in OpenSSL and so on. So I think really when you're dealing with Bitcoin, where if one mistake could be catastrophic where you lose access to your funds, you really should do, uh, you know, the best, of course. And in, in my opinion, the best would be using these uh, well-vetted, well-researched open source libraries. Uh, and so it's getting a bit long-winded, sorry, <laughs> to go back into the... To go back into the, the secure element side. So we, we do have a, a secure chip on our device. And uh, we use that uh, solely for uh, authentication purposes, so unlocking the whole the whole device. And so with that, we think, uh, and we can, get, again, get into details more, but with that, we think we can offer the best of both worlds in the sense of offering, um, you know, the physical protection enabled by secure chips, uh, the authentication capabilities enabled by secure chips to protect your whole setup, yet still have uh, the security, uh, the functional security, again, these high-level concepts that are hard to get right in Bitcoin. Um, this functional security uh, in a transparent and uh, auditable way. I was also keen to ask about backups. As you mentioned, there is this process with the Bitbox O2 where you put in an SD card and the backup is created onto that. Is that an encrypted backup or is that an unencrypted backup? I can chime in on that because I think uh, at first, there's still the problem that people don't understand the uh, hierarchical deterministic wallet creation. When I go to conferences, I usually speak to kind of educated, um, skilled Bitcoin people. But still, there's a high percentage of people not understanding that they can do a backup once at the beginning and it covers their future received coins. This is just a concept that it's hard to get if you're used to like traditional time machine uh, wise backups. Uh, why can't I do a backup at the beginning and receive a coin in a year and I, it's still covered by the backup I've done a year ago? This concept is so hard to understand and, and, and still people, um, there, there's still a lack of, big lack of education. And, and then you present them, well, now you have to write down uh, 12 or 24 words. Uh, this is, again, hard to understand. Why do I have to write down words? Uh, 
what is that? Is that and it's really the the education layer is not made in a way where my mother or like people wanted to get into Bitcoin that's or that are not computer experts can really get it. And I think we tried to defeat it a bit with um you just have an SD card. We try to educate them directly within the app. And you put out the SD card that the backup has done. Uh, it takes maybe a second. And then you take out the SD card and store, store it somewhere else. And um, I think that concept is easier to understand rather than write down words. And then you need to hide them from visual sites and stuff. And, and at the beginning, we encrypted backups. But one of the most dramatic problems in Bitcoin key storage is not hackers and not not people stealing your coins. It's yourself. It's you losing passphrases. And I saw much, much more in 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 the four digits amount of percentage, people losing coins because of losing passphrases, losing passwords. Uh, and the whole inheritance problem comes again into that uh, phase. And I, I think protecting people from shooting in their own foot is way more important at the first place than kind of securing them. So if they, if they manage to lose passphrases quickly and easily, um, it's probably better to store uh, stuff by default unencrypted. Uh, the Bitbox O2 stores backups unencrypted by default, but gives an option to, uh, to encrypt them. Yeah, that's an interesting one because, yeah, obviously some of the more hardcore listeners will be probably perking up and saying, what? No, it should be encrypted, da da da. But I can, I can sort of appreciate here there is also a user experience component that you're trying to manage as well and that you have to consider both sides there as well. If you, if you start to encrypt backups, what people do, I tell you, they start to write down the words and then they think, oh, well, I'm going to store that in my um, bank vault, right? So when I get under the bus, my wife can take my coins. Well, what do I do with the passphrase? Mm, okay, let, let me write the passphrase next to my my seed. So then the question is, what's the purpose of the passphrase if it's like always stored? And then they think, oh, well, maybe I write the passphrase onto another piece of paper and give that to my uh, my lawyer or my notary. But then they're making security assumptions that are not correct because if somebody uh, gets a passphrase and it's not secure enough and stuff, so it's 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 dangerous uh, territory at all. So I think uh, a solution that could solve that backup encrypted uh, multi-layer solution is uh, what 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 Pavel talked about, the Shamir secret. Uh, but in general, I think because we all saw more coins being lost at lost passphrases than attacks. By default, not encrypting is probably a good choice. But of course, we should ask more experienced users, do you want to encrypt? Yes. And then they can choose uh, another factor. Yeah, that's a fair comment, I think. And let's talk a little bit about the Bitbox app. So as I understand, now I had an opportunity to actually use the beta version of the Bitbox O2. And I, you know, you download the Bitbox app and you, you, know, you plug in and that's what you use to initialize the device. Can you tell us a little bit about that process? What's the Bitbox app? How does that work? So the Bitbox app, of course, is the, the user interface for using the Bitbox, the Bitbox 01 or the Bitbox 02 uh, that exists on your laptop. Um, it's a, you know the, the interface uh, to interact with the device, uh, uh, like, like all hardware wallet vendors have it. Um, so... The the app itself. Um, trying trying to think of which which level of depth to get into. I guess uh, one one of the things uh, we use the app for with the Bitbox O2. Uh, you may have noticed is there's a pairing 
that happens uh, during the setup process. Um, and this is uh, designed to, um, uh, at, at the moment, it's uh, basically binding the BitBox to your own computer. So we think this adds a bit extra security in the sense that if uh, suddenly someone replaced your app with a malicious app uh, or um, replaced your BitBox with a, a counterfeit device, then this uh, this pairing code will pop up again. It'll be an indication that uh, you know something strange is happening. Um, of course, we need to do we need to spend a bit more time on the UX to make that clear to users. Um, that's one aspect. Another aspect is um, uh, prior to um, uh, or actually every time the BitBox O2 is plugged in, there is an attestation check. Uh, and so what this means is, um, well, the purpose of this is to try to uh, mitigate against supply chain attacks and counterfeit devices. And so the BitBox itself on the secure element, uh, the secure chip, it stored um, a secret. And the BitBox will, or the BitBox app will send a challenge. Uh, the challenge gets signed by this uh, private key, uh, and then uh, it gets the response from the, the chip, and then it uh, can use um, the same Bitcoin elliptical curve cryptography to try to verify um, if the response is correct, if it matches the what's uh, the public key. Uh, and in that sense, you can get um, some protection against counterfeit devices, uh, uh, evil-made attacks, um, uh, and so on. Um, yeah, and maybe uh, to add to that is also that we, from the beginning, from the BitBox uh, 01 beta, we had uh, shipped it always with the native desktop application because we kind of thought the browser environment is not the right setup for doing uh, security crucial stuff. And I think that trend uh, is now something also competitors uh, will follow because it somehow conceptually makes uh, way more sense. Also, then, if it comes to cross-platform, including smartphones, and usually you need to download um, anyway something uh, on an app layer uh, to kind of bridge it with your USB uh, stack or uh, kind of configure it. Um, and I think the desktop app is just probably the ideal way how to communicate with the hardware wallet. Right. Yeah. And I think it's uh, interesting because there's different philosophies and thoughts around that, right? So for example, Trezor has a web wallet. Ledger has Ledger Live, which is a desktop application. And I think they've also got a mobile version. Uh, Coldcard doesn't even have an application. They just use, you know, Electrum or Wasabi, right? So everyone's kind of got slightly different ideas on that. I think the real kind of cypherpunk people out there, I think they'll appreciate that with the BitBox app, one thing I notice is it's kind of like, it's got the simple version of it, but if you want, there's advanced options and there's an advanced option there to connect it with your own node. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, there's, there's still the big problem that um, horror wallets are, I mean, they cover security, but they're not cover privacy uh, or most of them not cover privacy by default, at least. And what privacy also means, there's a relation between privacy and security, because if you sacrifice privacy, you may reveal that you hold coins, which can uh, hurt your security. Um, a simple answer could be the $5 ranch attack, if somebody knows you're holding a lot of coins. So privacy is highly correlated with security, and 
most of the default settings of all horror wallet vendors are using um, kind of giving up privacy by sharing the XPOP or sharing uh, what they own in, in, in general, not sharing the private key, but sharing their financial financial privacy. And um, I think this is a crucial point. And we're working towards having a default option that your privacy is not uh, given up completely. But right now, what the, or since since a year or two, what the Bitbox app offers is you can use your own uh, um, your own backend, and we also support Electron Personal Server. Uh, it's still an expertish solution, but I think this is the best we currently can give to users that they can connect to to their to their own node and not giving up privacy and not trusting uh, central um, validation. Fantastic. Can you tell us a little bit about how the user might do that? Is there a specific software that they would use or just literally just list the IP and port number or what? Yeah, I mean, there's there's documentation, but at the end, what they can do in the Bitbox app, they can uh, change the link of the backend. And um, if they want to set up their own uh, validation and privacy stack, that means they need to install Bitcoin Core. And the easiest solution is... Uh, I mean, to uh, add Bit, um, Electron Personal Server. Uh, this is a piece of software that's just a, a little layer that's not doing too much. And from then on, you have your own uh, Electron Server backend just for a single wallet or for a handful of wallets. Uh, because some other uh, mechanism would be that you install your own Electron Server, which is way over the top if you're only having a handful of wallets because you basically index all the transactions that you can immediately access uh, all addresses, which is like 99% of all the addresses you will never use in your personal setting. And again, I mean, the whole concept, with that's also a problem um, when people use BIP39, the mnemonic, uh, which I, I still think has some flawed elements in, in, on the conceptual layer, because if you want to restore um, a BIP39 uh, seed, that means you either need to have a full indexed, um, full indexed uh, Bitcoin Core instance, or you need to scan the whole chain, which makes it like needing a day for restoring a backup. And... Um, the BIP39 somehow assumes you you need to use central validation, which means you need to use you need to give up privacy in order to restore a backup, uh, unless you want to run a 500 gigabyte system constantly indexing the whole chain. Um, which again, I think backup is not solved now, and and that's also something we work on to make it uh, easy for users to not give up privacy. Right, yeah, and uh, as as you were saying, with um, it can be a little confusing, and it's a little bit more technically involved to run EPS, Electrum Personal Server, and then not just that, you would have to do uh, the rescan command, and then say, okay, when was this wallet started, and then it knows how far back in the chain to search, so that you don't have to like search back five years ago when maybe you only started this wallet, you know, two months ago or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's a, that's an interesting point. I think another point that I think the listeners will be very interested to discuss and know what your thoughts are is multisig. So what are your thoughts around multi-signature support? Do you agree that it's additive? Do you agree? Do you want to try to see that in Bitbox 02? What's your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, multisig is, is a very strong concept, how to kind of balance security. And... Um, for sure, there is need that users understand it better and users can use it. But it's it's such a long road until it's doable by uh, non-experts. And as I said, I think the greatest risk currently is still the user itself. And with multi-sig, 
um, if you're if you're not an expert, it's extremely complicated to do a setup, even with the best um, user-centric applications, including Electrum and, 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 and stuff. It's still very hard to set it up correctly, and it's so easy to lose coins, which makes me think um, maybe maybe giving users an option now could be more harmful than it actually uh, uh, it actually uh, achieves uh, security or better security uh, but for sure we want to we're working on on multi-sig solution solutions but it's still you know it's very immature on the concept level and we want to ship users something that's really easy to use and food food gun safe and um, and this may take another uh, round until this is ready yeah, and I, I presume also. Well, I know also that you can probably add some comments there around. There are some difficulties as well with multi-signature. If you were to, let's say, start with one sort of setup, and then you might not be able to recover that in some other setup, right? Because it's not as standardized around things like what is the derivation path, what is the what is the method, what was the script used. Can you yeah. comment a little bit on that, Jonas? I mean, it, it starts at the beginning. When do you uh, when when you create a wallet together with other participants? So how do you get their XPUB? Do they send you an email? Do they give you a WhatsApp message? So do you basically include Facebook in your trust layer uh, when you manage uh, a wallet? For sure, at some point you need to store the participants' XPUBs or pop keys on your hardware device. But how could you verify that this is actually the XPUB of your uh, of your participant? And then do you need to always be physical present to sign a transaction? Do you need to plug in uh, USB sticks or uh, hardware wallets on the same computer? Can you do it over the network remotely? And these are still, in my opinion, unsolved things or hard to solve uh, issues, which again has a lot of uh, a lot of uh, or a big surface uh, for attacks. And I think f- in order to give it to normal non-expert users, there needs to be uh, done more work on that layer, on the conceptual layer. Got it. I think that's a fair comment. Also, any thoughts around multi-signature with? devices from other manufacturers as well so do you have any thoughts on that yes yeah i mean what we currently consider is also adding support for third-party hardware wallets into our um um, software stack so of course if you if you if you want to store coins in the most secure way you also want to balance vendors so if 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 you can have uh if your security relies on multiple vendors it's more secure in general so um, I think that that's something we, we should give to users and users should understand. But again, it needs to work perfectly fine and it needs to be uh, it needs to be aware of the risks that the users screw up, which is still the highest risk. Yeah, agreed. Okay, let's talk about PSBT, partially signed Bitcoin transactions. So can you discuss around your thoughts on... Do you want to work with PSBT or do you find it difficult to work with PSBT? I've heard differing opinions on that. So what's your view? Yeah. I mean, PSBT is is a very technical layer that should not, um, or users should not be aware of what PSB is in general. But since we are experts uh, and we are still on, on, on the tip of the iceberg in terms of usability, I think PSBT is a very great piece of, uh, of specification. And it's basically, you know, a file format, you can say, that includes everything you need to sign a transaction or to co-sign a transaction. And 
what people currently mean with PSPT on the user level is they can plug in an SD card or something and they can sign a transaction completely air-gapped offline. Um, that's that's something we, we want to support in, in or be considered to support in, in the Bitbox because we have an SD card. Uh, we have the knowledge how to do that. It's just, you know, the, the demand and the layer of complexity for users are, is just uh, the demand is low and the complexity is high. Okay, and while we're on that topic as well, I know it's not exactly PSBT, but in around this idea of air gapping, do you have any thoughts or what's your view around being able to initialize the device without touching a computer? So for example, uh, the cold card has a function, something like that, where you can create it on the device and power it purely from a power bank. Did you have any thoughts on that with yeah. the Bitbox O2? Yeah, I mean, security is, as Pavel uh, from Satoshi Lab said, it's it's very it's a complex beast. So air gapping basically um, is a concept that you try to eliminate insecure channels. We consider USB an insecure channel because whatever comes from USB, we don't trust. We verify that on the device itself. But then people showed that you can actually measure power on the USB stack and then figure out what people see on the screen. So every password you show on the screen might be insecure if somebody is accessing a side channel. So what mean air gap? Air gap means you take the device out of the USB stack and maybe add a battery to it. But then again, the battery, they could power analyze what you do. And then once you plug it in to charge it up on your computer or Wi-Fi or whatever, they could send up uh, send out secrets. Obviously, this this is a more uh, hard, a harder attack to bootstrap. But again, uh, there's cameras. Cameras are also uh, collecting information, visual information in a large scale. Uh, audio signals, power signals uh, that can be power signals can also be captured uh, from a battery source that's 10 meters away. It's just a different, a different security model you do when you air gap. It's probably a very good security model as long as it's again uh, um, safe for users, not screwing, <clears throat> not screwing up. And and with the Bitbox uh, O2, we have all the tool sets to do the do uh, air gap modes, but it's not currently supported. Um, on the software software side. Got it. Oh, around change address verification. So my understanding here is, that, again, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you probably you, you know this better than me, um, but uh, one concept there is that the hardware wallet has to know that it has the private key for that change address. Uh, can you talk to that yeah. uh, problem and how does the Bitbox O2 make sure that it's you know doing that correctly? I think this is a, a solved uh, issue for all the hard wallets because it's 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 a basic concept that you uh, if 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 I send someone uh, bitcoins I verify his address or her address I'm I'm sending uh, coins uh, towards I'm not send I'm not verifying where the change goes because mostly there's change involved but the hardware wallet always verifies that the change is something he has the private key. Uh, or it's, it's an address he has the private key uh, for, and, and therefore it's safe to to kind of send the, the change uh, to myself. So this is, I, I'd say it's included in all hardware wallets because it's a basic need. The more complex problem is the fees, uh, because you can verify the change is going to, the, to back to myself, but you cannot verify before SegWit uh, that the fee was actually uh, correct or that you can verify the fee on the device which an attacker could have misused to pay extraordinarily high fees, but they, they would not go to the hacker, they would go to the miners. So it's 
maybe not not a, a large attack surface. Great. But that has also been solved with SegWit. Okay, so let's talk a little bit around uh, the can maybe the connection then with some other upcoming products. So I understand you've also got the Bitbox base. So can you tell us a little bit about that? What's the way that will all work together? Yeah, so the, the Bitbox base, uh, in my opinion, is a super great project, something I uh, personally work on since years, to have this plug-and-play box you can plug in and have the full verification and privacy stack on your own. Um because, you know, if you run Bitcoin Core on your desktop computer, it works. But to be honest, it uses a lot of, uh, or at least in initial block download, it uses a lot of resources. If you were, uh, if you had shut down your computer for a couple of days, it again uses all the resources for uh, fetching the new blocks and verifying them. So it's there's basically great opportunity to have a box or a little server you can call it running uh, next to your router that could all do do the hard stuff for you and even do more when your computer uh, has been shut down and um bitbox Bitbox space is basically an appliance of uh, ready to use uh, platform uh, or even hardware device uh, people can plug in and have all the privacy and trust features they could not build them themselves because of time or know-how resources yeah. And then what is the way it's foreseen to work together? I presume you would buy a Bitbox base and you would connect it to your like to your laptop or your computer somehow with the Bitbox app. And then that way you've got the hardware wallet yeah. checking back against its own Bitbox base, correct? Yeah. I mean, it's still a, it's a very a highly immature project in terms of goals. There's a, a large area where we allow it for experiments, for users to defining uh, it, its usefulness. But in general, um, it, 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 it's, it, is, it is a special computer that's optimized for, uh, for Bitcoin and Lightning stuff. And it, uh, it also has an included uh, hardware wallet. So there's a hardware wallet built into the Bitbox base. There's a screen, you can really do uh, uh, the same stuff you can do with traditional hardware wallets. But it also has a kind of full-fledged Linux computer. So basically how the user story would look like, you you, you plug your Bitbox Bitbox space into your uh, network and it shows up on your app. You can connect to it and then you you trust your own layer. Uh, Privacy is not, not violated. And you can do much more fun stuff, including lightning, including push notifications when stuff changes in your environment. Uh, there's there's a lot of possible features, probably way too many to not lose focus on doing the right things. Great. And uh, let's talk about the mobile app as well. So did you want to just touch on what have you got planned for the mobile app and how will that connect up and how does that work with the rest of it? Uh, yeah, so the mobile app... Um... Uh, we we have a prototype working right now, so it's all working. What we're mainly working on is the the UX, so um, making sure that things that look okay on the desktop also look okay on the the mobile uh, screen. Uh, and when we originally decided uh, what what software stack to use for the desktop app, um, we specifically designed it to work with uh, both desktop and mobile. Uh, and so. Um, basically using the same exact code base, which is uh, like a go backend and then uh, typical uh, 
web front end, HTML, CSS, JavaScript. Um, we can take that and apply it in, in the different systems. And so the goal with the mobile app is for it to be as identical as possible to the desktop app. So you get full features uh, on both. Uh, and then just, yeah, let, letting people um, use it as, as it would be used on the desktop. Right. So literally they could be out on the fly with their mobile and plug in the Bitbox O2 and off they go. They can do transactions with it. Yep, exactly. Like that. Yeah, maybe additional features that they can, you know, watch their funds on mobile. Could also be on desktop. So there's kind of different use cases you could do on mobile. Right. Yeah. So having like a watching only function, that sort of thing. All right. Well, I think there's some of the key questions that I had for you. Did you have anything else you wanted to touch on, Douglas or Jonas? Uh, I guess uh, one of the uh, I was hoping to get into uh, I guess the some of the security concepts uh, a little bit deeper of the sure let's route. do that um, so yeah briefly but um, I mentioned earlier that uh, we redesigned the security concepts of the the Bitbox O2 still taking the dual chip approach but but doing things a little bit differently um, as I, I know in some of the past. Uh, podcast. Uh, they talked about different types of hacks against them. Uh, in particular, general purpose microcontrollers, it's very easy to read out the secrets uh, from them. Um, one example is, uh, yeah, I guess in, in Russia right now, it's uh, legally accepted to be able to reverse engineer um, software, including uh, firmware. And so for a few thousand dollars and five, 10 business days, uh, you can send them a general purpose microcontroller and they can read it off with microscopes and tell you all the bits and all the code and all your secrets that are stored on it. Uh, and so um, when we when we designed our Bitbox O2, we had this in mind, uh, of course, a lot of other attacks in mind, and we're trying to figure out ways to kind of prevent all of these things. And so the, the concept then was, uh, uh, you know, of course, remote attacks, but also protect against someone physically stealing your device. And the idea there is that if someone does want to does steal your device, they do want to get to your secrets, uh, make them have to reproduce uh, three different bits of information, uh, plus, plus some more, but three main bits of information. One indeed would be um, a secret stored on the microcontroller, uh, the general purpose microcontroller, but also make them uh, need to recover a secret stored on the secure chip itself, uh, which of course is designed specifically to prevent these Russian labs from extracting the secrets. And then the third one is just not have all of the information required to recreate the seed on the Bitbox itself. And so I think this is a bit unique for us in the sense that we, uh, also use the the user password, user PIN, uh, when you first enter into the device. And we cryptographically combine all of these, uh, and then we use that as an encryption key to decrypt the seed. And so if you don't have uh, the readout of the microcontroller, you don't have the readout of the secure chip, and you also don't have the, uh, or I should say it differently, you need the readout from the microcontroller, you need a readout from the secure chip, and you also need uh, knowledge of what's uh, not on the device, but in the head in order to recreate the seed. And so we think uh, with this, uh, we can, um, uh, you know, security in depth, I, I guess, is uh, um, 
you know, a good thing. And so try to provide as many different security layers as possible. And we have more than that. We'll try to write it up in a blog post, uh, but try to provide as many uh, security layers as possible to try to make it as hard as possible for an attacker to get the funds. Mm -hmm. I think one great additional uh, point is that the secure chip also allows us to uh, do measurements against, against brute forcing. Um, that you cannot offload it to a different system where you have much more CPU power and then brute force it easily because that's always a problem. Also, BIP39 problem with its 248 rounds that you uh, that it's made for for uh, not very uh, efficient CPUs or uh, in, the, in that case MCUs. Um, so we need to make we we needed to add measurements that you not can offload the other elements and then brute force it in, on a system where you have much more power. And I think that's something we achieved with the, with the Bitbox O2. And maybe one thing I, I'd like to add um, um, for the closed source versus open source model. Uh, I mean, the closed source model is the model of obscurity, um, or we probably can do analogy to obscurity. And I think in the long run, there's always been examples that this model is not the one that survives the long run. So... Um, to just understand what the risks are, if 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 you do um, uh, SecP to 56k signatures or ECDSA signatures on a on a stack you can't control, there's always these nonces involved. Like you need um, either random uh, entropy or you need uh, this RF, RFC deterministic nonce model. And when by looking at the produced signature, you cannot tell whether they have used uh, valid entropy, kind of uh, uh, cryptographical uh, random number generation, or whether they have used the RFC standard to use a deterministic node. So they could use uh, something else, and you cannot tell by looking at the signatures. So, and they could actually um, export the private key met or any secrets they could export through uh, clever users of nonces, and nobody could verify that they're exporting um, um, secrets. And they could just collect secrets by looking at the public blockchain. And it could have been done. Nobody can verify them. So it's, again, a systemic risk. There could be uh, malicious nonces or signatures that extracts data on the blockchain and at some point somebody sweeps all the wallets. It's theoretically possible. That's why I think using closed source uh, is, 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 is not a good concept uh, because Again, the systemic risk, there is no security uh, experts that really can dig into those uh, things. And it could be time triggered. You know, we could start to collect or extract information by date X, Y, Z. And I think this makes it uh, highly, highly complicated and highly risky. Yeah, I think uh, actually, if I recall correctly, that is actually a point uh, Michael Flaxman raised as well, the chosen nonce attack as well. So that's, uh, mm -hmm. I presume that's uh, what you're referring to there as well. Yeah, and just to add, when you have open source, at least you can look at the code that does the SecP or the ECDSA signature. You can verify if the concept, what they are following is correct, and even the code. While if you have secure elements that do the signature for you, um, you have no way to verify whether the concept in general is okay. You can verify the signatures and compare it to a kind of reconstructed backups offline, offline but then you, you don't know if there's a time or user-based element that extracts only in certain circumstances. Yeah, I think uh, the listeners might get pretty scared about that idea. But um, <laughs> as you said, <laughs> I think as you said, probably, like, obviously there is a risk of theft and so on with hardware wallets, but I think it is a point that's well worth 
reiterating is that most people are likely to lose their coins by losing their seed or incorrectly doing the passphrase, those kinds of mistakes, than actually an attacker coming to get them. Now, that said, it could be that in five or 10 years time, the value, if Bitcoin has gone up so much, maybe at that point, you know, it, it does become more of an attacker risk than a lose your keys or screw up risk, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, maybe to add to that, I still think hardware wallets are by far the the best way for users to uh, securely uh, keep their Bitcoin safe. I mean, all these attacks or scenarios we just uh, pointed out are way more dangerous on hot stacks or on, on computers. They're using Python uh, libraries to sign ECDSA, which come from NMP or whatever, uh, unsecure source. So I think uh, by far hardware wallets give uh, non-expert users and including experts users, the best security um, uh, currently. And also, actually, one thing I noticed is you guys are having a Bitcoin-only version. Tell us about that. Go for it, Jonas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I advocated for Bitcoin-only a long time ago. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, yes, uh, as political say, politic, politician, political say, there is Bitcoin and there is shitcoins. And um, I think Pavel also um, said a good point that, you know, without all coins, they would have not survived 17 and 18, which is probably a true point. And there was also the argument of bringing people on board and transitioning them into Bitcoin at some point. I mildly agree with that, not fully, because for me, it always also feels a bit about, you know, helping people to getting scammed. <laughs> Uh, so I think it's there's it's it's uh, it's not an easy line you need to draw at some point because do you want to support coins that obviously look after a scam and then where 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 do you draw the line between what what, what is a scam and whatnot? Um, I personally think there is Bitcoin and there is shit coins, um, and I think we should not uh, if users think that way as well we should not hurt them additionally by adding risks of having firmware that it's supposed to do stuff on shit coins <laughs> yeah this year uh, and um uh, that's why why we have a bitcoin only version it, it's 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 made for uh for users only wanting to use bitcoin and it has a reduced reduced uh, attack surface surface and it's also signal uh, that they want Bitcoin only. It's also like, you know, it helps us to uh, know what to do in, in the future. Yeah. So so just to reemphasize, the whole, the whole point of having a Bitcoin only version is to reduce the attack vector. So every new coin you add, every new function you add, U2F, for example, uh, it allows different um, uh, communication protocols to come in. And they use different cryptography. So there could be uh, issues in the cryptography itself, issues in the API call and things like that. And of course, uh, the simpler you can make it, the more secure it, it can be. Uh, and so that, that's the whole point uh, of that. And so uh, an important note is that our uh, the addition, the Bitcoin only addition will never be able to um, allow uh, firmware from the standard edition. Um, so it'll never be able to... Um, you cannot switch the firmware between them. And that's also, of course, uh, a mitigation against uh, increasing the attack vectors. Yeah. Just to add here, it, it, it sounds after we're, uh, we're, we're trying to uh, make people buy uh, two devices, but actually it's not that. It's, it's, it's for security precaution because uh, you want to eliminate that an attacker 
can exchange uh, your device or can replace the firmware by the insecure one. Once they found a bug in the uh, in the non Bitcoin only version, they could replace firmware. So it's actually the device can only load Bitcoin only firmware, which makes it more secure uh, that it cannot be replaced by uh, stuff that has been broken. Yeah, and so and, and that said. Um... Since we're uh, we are a for-profit company, of course, we want to pay our employees' salaries and we want to, you know, uh, live up our mission to uh, improving the whole the whole ecosystem. Um, then it is important for us, of course, to listen to the market um, and uh, in order to to uh, set our our product product goals. Um, the market did tell us they want Bitcoin-only wallets, uh, but of course, another part says they want uh, to be able to explore other coins. And so we're trying to trying to figure out what, what the best approach is and, and move forward and listen to our users. Yeah. And we, we never forget that we're, we're a Swiss-based company. So Switzerland is, 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 is kind of the, uh, the land of neutrality. We also want to give user power and not, not decide what they should mm. do. Uh, when, when someone wants to use an altcoin, our mentality is more, well, we educate them, we inform them, but if they want to use it, it's their decision because neutrality is, is important. It should also underline that we are uh, we're, we're producing everything in Switzerland. It's a very crypto-friendly environment. There's less risks of being intruded by, um, by agencies that we need to follow certain policies. The supply chain attack is reduced. It's produced really in Switzerland and programmed in Switzerland. So I think this this is also a benefit that will uh, at some point come to users, uh, uh, to the users, yeah. All right, that's great. So look, I think that's all, all the questions I had. So uh, let's, um, just before we let you go, make sure you tell the listeners where they can find you online and uh, where they can go to find Shift Crypto Security online. Yep. So um, the best place to go is our website, so shiftcrypto.ch. Um, and at the bottom, you'll find links to our um, uh, different accounts on Twitter and Medium and whatnot. Um, and of course, Jonas is on quite quite widely fo- followed on Twitter, so you can find more about there. And um, I'm getting on Twitter myself also more and more. Yeah, I think Twitter is always a good medium. If you want to get more information, there's uh, Shift Crypto HQ. And myself, Jonas Schnelli, um, to contact if you have any questions, of course, IRC and all the other channels work as well. Great. Well, look, Jonas and Douglas, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Stefan, for having us. So now you've had a chance to hear from some of the different major Bitcoin hardware wallet vendors, and they've got different product offerings with slightly different philosophies and ways of crafting their product and service i have one more episode to come in this hardware wallet series so keep an eye out for that early next week and that is with justin moon and stepan snijirev just a quick reminder about some conferences that i'm attending coming up there is baltic honey badger 2019 the website for that is bh2019.hodlhodl.com i'll be emceeing a panel on lightning there so If you're around, it'd be great to see you guys there. And also, there is the Lightning Conference, where I will be one of the MCs. So the website there is thelightningconference.com. That is in October. It's in Berlin. So yeah, if you're a listener, I'd love to meet you guys. So make sure if you see me around there, come and say hi. As always, the show notes, the links to subscribe to the podcast, and also the transcript are on my website, stefanlevera.com. As always, thanks for listening, and I will see you in the Citadels.